Now after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Those words are from Matthew 2, verses 13 and 14. We've all had those dreams where we wake up with our hearts pounding in a sweat, thankfully realizing and discovering that we're not really being chased by the bad guy. But do you ever wonder how hard it was for Joseph to lay his head on a pillow at night? For Joseph, his heart-pounding, sweat-filled dreams kept coming true. And I have to think that after two dreams where he's visited by an angel, none with good news, all uprooting any attempt at a normal family life, he would think that laying his head on a pillow was a risky move. First, he had a dream where he was to marry Mary, pregnant with a child other than his own. And then he had the dream where he needed to wake up the family gather what they could, and flee their home and go to Egypt. And I hope that Joseph remembered while he and Mary, Mary were gathering things together that thousands of years before, another baby, also threatened by state-ordered murder, was saved by Hebrew midwives and brought up to deliver his people. As a Jewish boy, Joseph would have been taught the old familiar stories of Abram called to leave his country and journey to another land, only needing to flee it again because of famine and live in Egypt for a while. And he would have memorized the story of Jacob, also leaving his country to escape famine in their land. And later he would have memorized the tales told at Passover of Exodus 12, where the Israelites were driven out of Egypt so fast that they had no time to take provisions, and they had to bake unleavened bread. Embedded deep within his faith was the verse read this morning, When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or this one from Leviticus twenty-four twenty-two: There should be one law for native and, and for the alien who resides among you. And from Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Joseph and Mary would have taught Jesus these words from the Torah. And because they had experienced terror in the middle of the night, needing the kind hand of strangers to help them find new home and a new job and a foreign land, he would have been personally aware of how valuable that help was to his family. So it's not surprising that one of Jesus' first messages 
was, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, to, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free. And it seems clear throughout the Old and the New Testaments that to follow Jesus means that we follow him in his call for justice for all people oppressed by whatever powers happen to be in place, including opposing those powers in our own country, calling for harsh, cruel, criminalizing laws that are only making the living nightmare worse for the men, women, and children seeking to flee from poverty, hunger, and the violence of organized crime. We spent time at the border at, um, in Douglas, Arizona, and Agua Prieta, Mexico, listening to people's stories and hearing about the history of the borderlands. We saw the hardship and the suffering ended, or suffering that was etched on the faces that welcomed us into a glimpse of their world. And we spent time at Shalom, Men- or Shalom Fellowship, Mennonite Fellowship, at Tucson, Arizona, noticing how they have made their space a place of welcome as they provide safe spaces for those in desperate need, and, and they visit in a detention center nearby. My hope was that I would be able to better understand and articulate immigration and border issues when I was uh, in conversations with others, and I think I'm able to do that better. But I think the real value was internalizing the face of the 14-year-old boy whose grandmother kicked him out of the house because she could no longer feed him. And he was making his way alone across the border. He was old enough, she said, to find his own food. Or the young mother with two young daughters, ages four and six, whose husband was killed. And she was told that they were coming back for her. She was risking everything to cross the border, to go across the desert, just to stay alive and to save her babies. To turn our backs on them is to turn our backs on Joseph and Mary, getting up in the middle of the night, gathering what they could to save their baby boy. And to turn our backs on them is to turn our backs on the more than 50 references I found in the Bible on immigration. It is a hard calling. May God give us the strength to follow. The U.S.-Mexico border is almost 2,000 miles long. Currently, there is a physical barrier on about 650 miles of that, which is almost exactly one-third. The wall that does not exist yet dominates our news, but in most places that are accessible to most people, it's already there. 
I'm going to share a little bit about the wall itself and about two Mexican Christian organizations that are doing what they can to help people in desperate need. Mark Adams, the coordinator of Frontera de Cristo, met our group of 12 at the Tucson airport on October 4. Mark and other Frontera de Cristo staff served as our drivers, hosts, and guides. We returned to our bunks at a church in Agua Prieta, Mexico at night, but this van was our daytime home for five days. Our first stop was at the U.S. side of the wall separating Douglas, Arizona from Agua Prieta. This section, which consists of square steel posts about 18 to 20 feet tall, was built in 2004. It is rusty, ugly, and intimidating. In town, on our side of the border, uh, the, the barrier, there is also a large cement ditch, razor wire, and a smaller fence. In this picture, the added features are just starting in the distance, and Laura will show you a closer picture later. The dirt road was built for Border Patrol vehicles, and the whole area is constantly watched by security cameras. About four miles west of the city limits, the large fence ends and a vehicle barrier begins. This is intended to keep out pickup trucks and such that would drive across as opposed to people walking across. The Border Patrol is used to seeing the Frontera van with groups of visitors, but they still sent a vehicle to keep us company. You can see it in the background. There isn't much beyond this point. This is the same area, just looking the other direction. There isn't much beyond here other than miles and miles of desert. A single drug cartel dominates the Agua Prieta area. That makes the city look peaceful and prosperous but it also creates a lot of addiction and oppression. We visited Creda, a local rehabilitation center, which serves people of all ages as best they can with very limited resources. The workers there shared their own stories of addiction, desperation, and recovery, and how this has led them to help others. Part of our fees for the trip go to the helping agencies we visited, and they all treated us as very welcome partners. When asked about their most urgent needs, they said, keeping the lights on, they struggle to pay the electric bill every month. Creta staff took us out into the desert, I believe this was on the other side of town, uh, fed us a picnic lunch under a large shade tree, then led us on a 15-minute walk to the wall. It's still there out in the desert. This gentleman, who now works for Creda, told stories of his past years working as a migrant guide, or coyote, and how they would get their customers into the U.S. and play tricks on the Border Patrol. Fewer people try this now, in this area at least, because many of them are captured by the drug cartel and forced to work for it, or they simply die in the desert. 
We also visited a shelter which provides short-term housing up to two weeks for migrants with nowhere else to go. They have fascinating murals on some of the walls. Many Central American migrants travel through Mexico on top of trains, where they are targeted by local police as well as gangs. But also, they are sometimes given food by local residents. Here, we see Jesus traveling with them, a sign of hope in the midst of great fear. Many of you have seen this picture before. Laura, who took all of these pictures for us, even had her bulletin with her. Kame is the name of the migrant shelter, and they also served us a meal, allowing us to eat with the migrants who were staying there at the time. Kame provides food, beds, or at least sleeping mats, and legal advice. Sound advice is very hard to come by in this area. The gentleman at my table had lived in Central California with his family before being caught and deported to Tijuana and was hoping to get back to his family, which is still in California. I thought about this for a moment when he told us this. Agua Prieta is more than 500 miles from Tijuana in the wrong direction. So I asked him, why did you come here? He said, some people told him it was easier to cross the border here. They lied. Good morning. My name is Laura Pauls Thomas. Like many folks who worship here, I work for Mennonite Central Committee, specifically in the East Coast region. During this learning tour, I took a few hundred photographs and I scrawled some copious notes in a pretty wild mix of English and Spanish so that I could tell these stories with the greatest accuracy possible. Today I'd like to share about what gave me the most hope through my visit to the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, the stories of organizations and individuals that are assisting migrants, and some unexpected brightly colored murals. Then I'll conclude our presentation by sharing some general reflections from participants in our learning tour group. Café Justo is a coffee cooperative that began in 2002 as the result of an effort of Mark Adams from Frontera de Cristo, which translates to Border of Christ in English, um, and Daniel Cifuentes, who is pictured here, um, with a $20,000 microloan. Their goal was to ease the intractable twin problems of rural poverty in Mexico and illegal immigration to the U.S. I think this addresses the root cause of migration in a way that makes sense on an economic, political, and moral level. Because of the co-op, workers can stay in their home country, do the work they know best, and earn a living wage. 
They even receive health insurance for their families, which is somewhat unheard of in Mexico. So organic coffee is grown in the southern state of Chiapas in Mexico and is sent green or raw to Café Justo y Mas, which is a cafe in Agua Prieta. Um, So there it's roasted and sold at a fair price. The coffee shop hires people from Creda um, so that individuals can learn valuable job skills and earn income. The shop provides a safe, substance-free environment for young people recovering from drug and alcohol addictions. The coffee co-op turned a profit after just one year of operation, and that profit is split between its three founding organizations, Café Justo, the coffee cooperative, Creda, and Frontera de Cristo. Justice-minded churches in the U.S., such as Shalom Mennonite Fellowship in Tucson, support the co-op by ordering large quantities of coffee and then selling bags to their congregants on Sundays. The Mexican Coffee Cooperative continues to grow from a small $20,000 loan back in 2002. This pales in comparison to the billions of dollars that the U.S. is spending on border enforcement. The lowball estimate of the 670 miles of existing border infrastructure across our southwest border is $2.6 billion. As one Café Justo y Mas employee named Amsi Espinosa told us, it's not just coffee beans, it's helping families. And more importantly, the cooperative is taking aim at the root causes of migration and providing avenues so that families don't have to make the difficult choice to leave their homes. I'm also going to talk about Dugla Prieta Trabajan, which is a women's cooperative that was founded in 2004. Dugla Prieta, uh, the name is a combination of Douglas and Agua Prieta, and the whole thing means Dugla Prieta works. So this is Trini Anguamea. She moved from southern Sonora State to Agua Prieta 22 years ago. She worked at a factory in Agua Prieta making window blinds for 15 years, but it really wasn't rewarding. Um, So she came to the co-op, and when she arrived, she was ashamed because she didn't know how to read or write. But with the co-op's help, she finished elementary and high school, She's now the director of the co-op. The Women's Cooperative serves women in the community, both Agua Preta locals and migrants who have settled there in the border town. Most women come, learn skills, and then leave to find work with their newly gained knowledge. There are garden plots and a greenhouse for nine women where they can learn sustainable gardening techniques and save money on groceries as fresh produce is expensive. The women gain better nutrition for themselves and their families, and they learn to prepare different vegetables and fruits. Each woman can choose what to grow on their plot, and this can vary from figs, chilies, guavas, grapes, apples, mulberries, cilantro, and more. 
They also give crocheting and sewing workshops to the women there. The women learn how to create these handicrafts, and they sell what they create to earn extra income. 10% of the sales of their crafts go back into the co-op to ensure that its programs continue. Trini says, it's a very beautiful thing and good for the community. The women here are proud of what they've accomplished. Earlier, Bob alluded to the U.S. side of the border wall. Here you can see the barbed wire and the ditch in there. Uh, so to me, our side of the wall felt very sterile, very isolated, and I felt very uneasy. However, on the Mexican side, I experienced vibrance, hope, curiosity, connection, understanding, and acceptance. Butterflies and other migratory species were often featured on the signs of the wall, and this signified the hope of finding a better life, perhaps through migration. Signs of love and sister and brotherhood were displayed proudly on the wall. This section of the border wall says, Amor sin fronteras, which means love without borders. In conclusion, there are both hope and fear to be found everywhere, and sometimes in the most unexpected places. I didn't expect to feel safer on the Mexican side of the wall with colorful murals than on the U.S. side, where Customs and Border Patrol officers were keeping a measured eye on our group at all times. As Bob described with the story of the man who was deported from Sacramento, California after 28 years, people's stories that we heard firsthand were the single most powerful teaching instrument during our time on the U.S.-Mexico border. We heard stories of great sadness, but also of incredible resilience and hope through the individuals and organizations that are making a positive difference in the borderlands. For me, the challenge is and has been to share these stories in a compelling, accurate way that gives dignity to each individual involved. After an emotional and difficult week, our group had a lot to reflect upon. Here's some of what they had to say. The stories we heard are so important. They're precious to each person that shares theirs. They were raw, intersectional, and illuminated the many different facets of the very complex immigration issue. A pastor in our group remarked candidly, Going forward, my life will not be centered around immigration, but I will not come away unchanged. The pastor committed to support Cafe Justo's efforts, research the immigration situation in his own state, and become more politically involved in advocating for migrant rights. Most of us in the group felt a heaviness, a guilt, because of our privilege as U.S. citizens and because of our ability to pass through the U.S.-Mexico border with relative ease when we had met and heard about so many people that want that same exact thing yet cannot attain it. 
Lastly, one member of our group pointed out that God does not call us to be comfortable. And they asked the following question, and I'll leave this question with you as well. What might it cost us to show extravagant generosity and hospitality to others as Jesus did?